Nation Reaching Nations is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural, local, and global missions, missions from the majority world, and culturally contextual teaching. The missionaries' stories and idea of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nations Reaching Nations. I am Brian and I'm so glad that you are joining us today. I like to talk about a lot of non-conventional ideas and the idea we're going to be talking about today is, uh, I would say, ironically non-conventional. Uh, it's only non-conventional because we haven't been doing it this way in a long time, but we're going to talk about different forms of organizing and gathering the church. And so my guest today is part of a house church. And for most of you, I would imagine you've probably never been to a house church or been part of a house church, or maybe that seems uh, odd or post-apocalyptic or cultic or something like this because you've just simply never been a part. But I'd like to uh, point out that for the first several hundred years of church history, the church met predominantly house to house. And we see this certainly in the book of Acts, but even as we read early church accounts from the early church fathers, we see the same thing going on probably for about the first 250 to 300 years uh, of the church's existence. It met in houses. It met in the local synagogues, at least in the early part anyway. Uh, it kind of met wherever it could. And so the church is so much more than a building. And if we get outside of the church, the idea that the church is a building— uh, this concept, of course, during COVID, this has certainly been something that probably most of us have been forced to experience, whether we wanted to or not. The idea that church is much more than the place in which we meet, but it's the people in the body. Uh, so how do we then maintain the function of the church and the purpose of the church during COVID, or let's just say in a house church setting, apart from uh, a building, a traditional building structure? What do we do as a church? What does that look like? And so this is an essential question that we have to ask. What is the purpose? What are the purposes and the functions of the church? So I have with me today in the studio, I have David Matthew. Uh, he used to be a member of our church here, and uh, he is now part of a church plant, which we'll be talking about in a minute, uh, called Redeemers Love Houston. He serves as an elder there. Uh, he works as a high school video teacher here in the Houston area. So David, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, David, let's start start with uh, kind of you as a person. What is your kind of family background and heritage? Yeah, so um, I get asked this a lot. Um, I was born here. Um, I think one of my professors at HBU, uh, Dr. Marcos, at one point said uh, I was ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> but uh, Did you say thank you? <laughs> yeah, thanks, I guess. <laughs> I guess, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was like, oh, I can't quite place where you're from. Um, I think I could pass for Indian in certain places, Mexican, uh, Middle Eastern. Uh, sometimes I get that. My dad is actually from India, and my mom is from Mexico. So I've, I'm pretty uh, international. I've kind of got both hemispheres. And in addition to that, I'm also engaged uh, 
to a wonderful girl from the Philippines. So um, just kind of spreading out the diversity there. Yeah, there you go. So where is she in the, from in the Philippines? Uh, from Manila, from the Metro Manila area. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And um, yeah, she's still she's still there in the Philippines. And uh, fortunately, because of all the craziness happening, we haven't been able to see each other since December. Um, but we're hoping that the, her fiance visa uh, will come in soon. So. so I'll I'll ask you in a moment about your parents' story because that sounds interesting. But how did you and your fiance meet? Oh, we met online actually. Um, but even before we met, I was actually planning. I have a friend who's a missionary in the Philippines, and I thought it would be cool to. Um, just go visit him and see what he does with his ministry. Uh, and it happened to be in the same area. So I said, we had been talking online. I said, hey, uh, do you want to meet uh, when they get over there? And so we met and uh, got to know her, um, just saw her heart for the Lord, uh, saw her growing spiritually, saw us identifying on a lot of things that uh, we value in terms of marriage and family and mm-hmm. kind of went from there and we're just really excited to so you visited her there yes we visited i visited her there we met in person uh about a year ago uh and then i came back in uh december for christmas and proposed her wow uh so were you able to attend her church while you were there yes uh she goes to uh ccf which is a christ community fellowship it's a big uh uh both english and tagalog speaking uh, church there in the Philippines. Yeah, uh, I went to a conference in the Philippines a while back, and uh, it, the conference was global, but it was one of the local praise and worship teams that led it. Oh, man, uh, when we get to heaven, I hope it's Filipinos leading worship <laughs> because they are incredible at it. I love uh, Filipinos, and uh, the the Filipinos I've met in, in the churches there have just been really amazing. I feel like uh, what they know biblically and their passion for the Lord, um, sadly, I think puts a lot of uh, us Americans to shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for uh, sure. Just been, I was really, really encouraged when I went there. Yeah, for sure. Did you try Balut while you were there? I did not. I was told about it, oh. but I did not. All right, all right. So will the wedding happen here or there? The plan was originally to have like a, a non-legal, just like a church ceremony there for her family. Okay. Uh, because we're on a fiancé visa, so we have to get legally married here. Oh, interesting. Um, it, there's the whole, like, 90-day fiancé kind of thing because you, you have 90 days to marry the person. Yeah. Um, so we were going to do a wedding there for a family, and then once she gets the visa, come here and do another wedding here okay. for everyone on So when side. you go, you've got to do the balut. <laughs> I mean, get married, too. That sounds really important. But also try the balut. That, <laughs> yeah. That's number two. I went, when I went, I wanted to so bad because I like to try. Maybe you should explain what balut is. Yeah, so so for, for the listeners, balut is a uh, fertilized duck egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so fertilized meaning it's it's not a, a yolk inside the egg. And so it's kind of grown a little bit into a little baby it's ducky. It's like the embryo. Yeah, it's like in the embryo phase. And then uh, they cook it and... <laughs> You eat it like that. So you peel the egg off, and there is some, like, egg yolkiness on the inside, but there's also some birdiness on the inside. It's kind of one of those uh, not-as-accessible foods, international foods. Um, And so some people really struggle with it. When I was there, I was in a business district, and the only place I could find it at were gas stations. And I Mm -hmm. thought, 
I don't eat gas station food here in the States. <laughs> don't, don't do it. So it seems don't like Balut is not the thing to do at a gas station. Uh, it's like, I really, this should be like a street food, like a fair or a food cart or something like that. Not a, yeah. not a gas station where it's been sitting there for who knows how long. Yeah. To be fair, I think there, are, there's a fair number of Filipinos also who haven't necessarily tried it themselves. So. That is true. That is true. Uh, there are. How did your parents meet? Um, you know, it was, I, I'm pretty sure they met, um, at a retreat in, uh, from U of H. I don't remember what the ministry was. Um, but they were both in Houston and they both kind of had a passion for doing ministry with internationals. And, um, you know, I grew up being part of that ministry that they were doing right. uh, since even before they were married. Uh, so it seemed normal actually to me just to have growing up just around people from different countries. Like that to me was my normal growing up mm-hmm. was being around Indians and Filipinos and Africans and people from uh, Europe and China and everywhere mm-hmm. eating all sorts of different types of food. And uh, But then I was picky about eating American food. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, people make a lot of fun of me because I have grown up internationally as well. Mm. And I'll eat pretty much anything except for some pr- kind of choice American foods that I just don't really care for and can't help it. So growing up in your home, I mean, it sounds like your parents were very international people and uh, you're a very international person. Sometimes international people, you you learn from lots of cultures and you wind up uh, at some point going, well, who am I really? Mm-hmm. Like, what is my way for problem solving? What right. is my way for communication? Is it direct? Is it indirect? Is it you know, narrative, is it point by point, you know, what, what, it, who am I? Um, at the same time, it sounds like they both come from places with uh, strong, deep traditions of how their own cultures do this. How, what did this look like in the home for you? Yeah, I think, you know, they, they came here when they were teenagers. So they kind of also already had one foot in their home culture and one foot in American culture. Uh, but they're both very strong Christians. And so they're, um, they also, wanted to do things um, biblically based, and we were very involved in church and ministry. Um, but I definitely identify with, with that feeling of um, probably a lot of kids of internationals where you kind of feel like you're not quite American, but you're also not quite whatever your parents are right. in this case. I mean, so you're right. Their cultures are both very similar. They're both... Um, very traditional, um, both Mexican and Indian culture, similar foods. But yeah, I think the the cultural identity issue is real for a lot of uh, kids of internationals. It's, you know, it, in some ways it was typical of American family. In some ways it, it wasn't. It's actually a little bit hard for me to kind of pinpoint exactly where those things are because I didn't grow up in an American household. So I'm like, uh. Right. Yeah. So in the midst of all of this, your parents really sound more like uh, 1.5 generations. So they're not a true first generation who mm-hmm. grew up in their home countries, completely wired according to their home culture, and then came here. Neither are they like you, who is 100% born here, mm-hmm. whatever that means for people who grew up in mixed uh, mixed, mixed families and international families. And um, So you're kind of... <sighs> technically speaking, I guess, a second generation mm-hmm. uh, person. Right. But how, how has this played out in your own identity? Have you ever tried to 
do you lean in more to your this kind of blended American identity? Do you ever go on a search for, mm-hmm. you know, who am I really? Where am I from really? Is, is this at all part of your thinking? So I think this is where growing up in a Christian household helps in that I think I would be very much confused and very much on that kind of a search for who I am if it hadn't been for the fact that being I was raised to believe first that my identity is in Christ. Uh, so I don't think I was aware of it at first growing up. I think I, I could kind of tell growing up around my friends uh, that something was a little bit off, that it, maybe I didn't quite relate to people in the same way, um, or I just didn't value the same things. Um, but it, in some ways it's also a blessing that uh, I don't feel tied down in a, in a negative sense towards any particular culture Right. Um, that that my identity and my culture is first found in Christ and in the larger church as a whole rather than this country or that country or this language, this set of beliefs. So you and I came to know each other through Will Crest, I, I guess five or six years ago now. Yeah. And I've actually visited, you invited me to, to present at your current church. And if you think of Houston, you know, Houston is steadily diversifying. But if you mm-hmm. go back to the time that your parents came here and when you were a, a baby growing up in church, what was your early church experiences like? Yeah, so we we went to uh, Bethel Independent, Independent Presbyterian at the time uh, when I was growing up, uh, which was probably a mostly white church, I, I would say. Uh, now it's just called Bethel church because they're not really very Presbyterian. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, they they still had their international ministry going on um, as a parachurch ministry. And at a certain point, I don't remember what year or how old I was, but uh, I was pretty young. They decided to uh, transition to being uh, a church. And so that became kind of a, a church plan where we'd meet in homes and then we would move around to different buildings. We would meet at College of Biblical Studies uh, at one point um, back when this was back when like their their whole building was just where their library is now I think <laughs> that was their whole campus um, but yeah my, my church experience growing up was pretty diverse already just because they they were involved already with internationals so those these are the people I was around these were the mm-hmm. people I was exposed to mm-hmm So let's let's fast forward to uh, the current church where you're at. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Redeemers Love Houston? Yeah, so we're um, a multi-ethnic church uh, planted in southwest Houston uh, with the goal of reaching the southwest Houston area. And uh, we're really wanting to focus on just building a culture of discipleship uh, within the community. Uh, we were planted a few years ago um, by good friend of mine uh, named Brandon Durham. Uh, he was actually influenced uh, somewhat by uh, Dr. Wu, which was former pastor of Wilcrest. Um, but he also had a vision of wanting to start a uh, an international church here in Houston. Uh, well, just an international church in general. And he picked Southwest Houston because, like you said, of the increasing diversity of the area where you don't, you don't have to go out to find people. The, the, the nations are all here. Right. So that's that's kind of been the the twofold mission, if I could summarize the churches, just to be that multi-ethnic church like Wilcrest, and uh, to really build a culture of discipleship in the church. 
Yeah, when when I visited, uh, it seemed like you had at least a half dozen nationalities in the room. And when I say room, I'm saying living room for those who don't know. Uh, It was a very small group meeting in a house, a good group, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not a large, not a large room to have that many different nationalities represented. Yeah, I don't want to give ourselves too much credit because I feel like in Southwest Houston, you almost have to try to not be diverse. <laughs> to, uh, you almost have to be intentional about it, uh, just because it's it's just such a it's just such a sprawling diverse community. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many people from all over the world. Um, we have people bringing all sorts of different types of food and yeah. snacks. I was I was brought in to do some consulting for a church one time and. Uh, I visited their church on a Sunday and was quite impressed. And I sat down with the the leadership team and I said, "I'm I'm really impressed that for as small a church you are, uh, that you're really multi ethnic." And every person in the room says, "We're not multi ethnic." And I said, "No." Uh, there's a, a Korean man and his daughter sang a song on Sunday. Um, I sat next to a family from Uganda. I chatted with a family from Colombia, from Mexico, from, and I just start naming all the places. And I mean, there might've been 60 people in the, in the room and they all just kind of lean back in their chairs and they go, huh. (laughs) (laughs) It was the first time that they, it just felt so natural. Yeah. Uh, I've actually, my, my daughters go to harmony school where they have, I think 150 nations or 119, maybe 119. I think that's it. And, uh, they're, my oldest one is blonde and She's the only, or at least for a while, was the only blonde-headed kid in the entire school. But for them, this is just normal. Mm-hmm. And I actually had to explain, when I was a kid in school, there were a bunch of white kids, one African-American, one Asian, one Latino. And now, in that same area, that place is very, very radically different. And so it's just a, a different thing that kids today are growing up with. Yeah, at, at Sharpstown, because I teach at Sharpstown, they, it, I probably speak more Spanish than English uh, to my students and... I don't know what the ratios are, but it's probably mostly Hispanic, a lot of uh, first-generation immigrants, mm. um, a lot of Africans, uh, some Vietnamese, uh, very few whites, actually. Um, usually when I'll see, it, it'll actually catch my attention if I see a white kid <laughs> in the hallway. I'm like, oh, oh there's you're a white kid here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that. I think that's kind of how my, my kids feel. They asked our family to represent America at their, they do an international festival. Everybody, it's super cool. They bring, it's like a mini UN um, and they, all each family represents their home country and brings some dishes and they go, would you represent uh, America? And I said, well, there's tons of Americans here at the school. What are you, what are you talking about? And they said, well, you're one of three, this is their, their words, not mine. You're one of three true American families. And I said, true American families. Do you mean white? And now they're a little bit nervous. They go, well, come on, will you do it or not? I said, well, I hate to mess with your myth. I said, have you ever noticed how my name doesn't look like it's pronounced? You know, because it looks like Hebert, but you say Hebert. And they go, yeah. I said, that's because we're not American. We're French. And and you just see the wheels turning. And they're like, "Come on, dude, would you just do it? Like, you, you look the part. Make make us some hot dogs and get <laughs> and do the table." So, yeah. I just want to say it's funny how, for some reason, European heritages don't seem to count for some, because it's all white. I don't know what what it is. But. Well, well, with with us, we're actually a recognized people group by the U.S. government. Because I mean, my grandmother spoke French, and they were part of 
the government made this huge move to eradicate French. Lang- I mean, now they're trying to preserve it as a dying language. Wow. Um, but it we're we were kicked out of Canada. I mean, we have a very specific history. We're not just like a vague French descent. Like it's a right. very documented kind of thing. Um, but in the eyes of every, all the rest of the world, I'm white. I'm just regular American, mm-hmm. whatever that is supposed to mean. Um, th- this was frustrating going overseas, F- not so much for me, but for my friends when they would say, tell me the American tradition on dating. Who pays? And I'd say, well, uh, you know, uh, traditionally, I guess the man pays, but now they could split the check or like if he's a real catch, you know, she might pay. Um <laughs> Tell me the tradition on this. What do Americans do? And I go, well, do you mean uh, Latino Americans? Do you mean African Americans? Do you mean white Americans? And just trying to get a read on a multicultural society from a culture that's very monoethnic was such a challenge. Right. And such a huge country, too. I think people don't realize how big the U.S. is. Uh, I mean, there's so many countries you could fit just in Texas alone. (laughs) Right, right, right. And culturally, I mean, Mm -hmm. even just amongst white people from the north to the south and the east to the west and city to rural. I mean, there's so many cultures. Yeah, even within the same state. Right. The north part of the state, west part of the state, south part of the state. (laughs) Very true. The small towns, the big cities. Right. Yeah, I mean, think of Austin to, like, some small town in East Texas, just the cultural vibe you get. night and day. Night and day. Even if you're just talking white people, much less, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not just talking white people. So let's go back to the church. Um, you guys are a house church, and that's unusual. You're in the city that has the most mega churches in the country, and I would assume by extension that would be the world. And here you guys are saying, go small. Right. What's behind this? Yeah, there's several things behind that. And it, I think it kind of took us a while to get to a place where we are now, where we're, we're comfortable and actually wanting to stay in a home because usually you know church plants they start in a home but then you kind of grow out of the home and then you move to a building and then you might uh, rent a building and then you might buy your mm-hmm. own building and that's kind of the typical trajectory we tried that and it didn't really work too well so we we had started out in a home we started renting a building we were at like three different places and uh, you know there, there were a few problems with that uh, one is that we hadn't really built the culture of the church yet before we had moved so i think it might have been better if we had if that had really been uh solidified first Uh, but we just lost momentum and we also lost some things that we didn't really want to lose and that is um i can think of so many conversations i've had after church or before church that would have only happened in a home it would not have happened if we had been in a building uh, and that right. uh, that goes into our goal of building a culture of discipleship that we can have uh, meaningful, you know, people, people are comfortable asking a meaningful question when you're in that environment where you can just actually sit down and talk to somebody. But when you're in a building, uh, the structure and the form of the building is, you know, unless you're intentional about making spaces for people to to be able to do that uh to sit down afterwards and have those conversations mm-hmm. usually it's it's designed in such a way that you go in and you leave uh you go in for a specific purpose and once you're done with that purpose you get out and you leave as opposed to a home where a home is a place where you you live a right. home is a place where you sit and you eat and you talk to people um and so 
another reason uh, to answer your question why we want to stay small, specifically not just stay in a home setting, which sounds counterintuitive to a lot of people is, oh, you know, you want the church to grow bigger, right? Well, yeah, actually we do want it to grow bigger, but maybe not in the way that most people think. Um, what we've what we've learned in building a culture of discipleship is that in, in being ten, intentional about discipleship, and maybe I should talk a little bit about discipleship, uh, about what that means, but uh, someone was asking about this today. Uh, one of the people in one of my discipleship groups is um, kind of what, you know, how do I how do I get a, a grasp on what this is? And I think, in a sense, it's it's spiritual parenting. You see Paul um, refer to Timothy as his child in the faith. Ideally, it should be done at home through your parents, um, but that's not always the case for everybody, especially for new believers. So uh, there's an intentionality behind discipleship, and I think um, something we try to do is to be intentional about trying to make sure that someone, everyone who's walking through our doors, even if they're not a member, is being pursued in some way for discipleship. And with that intentionality, you start to become actually a little bit overwhelmed when you have too many people. Right. Uh, because then we're not able to build that culture that we want to build. Right. Then it just becomes a come in, come on Sunday, and then live the rest of your life throughout the week. Mm-hmm with no one pursuing you and no one talking to you, no one holding you accountable. Um, there's so many things that um, we've been able, so many issues we've been able to address with people coming to our church, especially our members, that would never have been addressed if we had only seen them on a Sunday and once a week for Bible study on, on a weekday. Um, you know, people don't open up about certain things unless you meet with them one-on-one mm-hmm. unless you tell them hey i want to disciple you yeah would you like to be in this subject group with me um would you like to meet this often and and go over this book and talk about life and and go over these things and uh and people want that people i think are hungry for that for somebody to um to just show an interest in their lives uh to walk through life with them and We've just been really, uh, the, the pastor and I, Spencer Simpson, is, is the pastor. Um, we've just been really encouraged and really um, just joyed to see a huge amount of growth in the sense of uh, seeing people grow, not so much in the sense of numbers. Although, uh, you know, lately we haven't done too bad in, this, in terms of numbers. Uh, God has been blessing us a lot. But I'm just thinking if I could choose between having a thousand people who would only come once on a Sunday and we would never right. have any relationships with these people except for, you know, the few who we can practically have relationships with, as opposed to having ten people that we can actually see them go from reading your Bibles practically to reading every day and then actually sharing the gospel with their family members mm-hmm. and then discipling their children and actually being able to intervene when it comes to someone's, uh, w- you know, whatever relationship issues they're having in their marriage or dating or in- engagement or whatever. Yeah. 
um, I would take the ten over the thousand every day, any day. Yeah, I had a friend who was planting a church in Europe, and he he had a really witty title for the article he wrote. I don't remember what it was, but it's something essentially the curse of the microphone. And he talked about mm. the early days of their church plant. It was small. Everybody sat in a circle facing each other. Uh, it was conversational. Uh, and then the moment that they got bigger, they had to put a microphone. Well, now we have a microphone that goes at the front of the room. And so there's a front and then there's the facing side. And But he described not that those things are morally bad or wrong. It's just uh, from a church culture or socially speaking, it changes what you can and can't do. Right. I heard a really great quote one time. It says, uh, we, we create the space and then the space creates us. Mm. And I'm thinking about our own building here at Willcrest, right? We have a, a massive kitchen for a church our size. Uh, I mean, building size, I'd say probably 10%. That might be a little high, but we have a significantly large kitchen for a church our size. And I think back in the day, there were a lot of served potluck meals, mm-hmm. not not where everybody brings a dish necessarily, but like there's a staff that cooks and um, – or maybe it was used for community outreach. I don't know, but it's, it's kind of a serving line style kitchen, not a we all come and have a dish together type kitchen. And I think back in the day, it, it got a ton of use. And now we're in a generation that's that's not the same ideal. And so we have this big space mm-hmm. and you can see where our current church culture is out of touch with where our, I guess, early, you know, late 60s, early 70s church culture was. And But you can see that all over the place in, mm-hmm. in different buildings uh, I mean, not just our own, but churches everywhere. You know, you right. go, well, why can't we do X, Y, Z? Well, our building doesn't do that. Mm. Okay, well, whoever sat down and designed the building designed it and created it, but then it creates them back. And a home environment is just very different mm-hmm. as far as that goes. Yeah, and something that we want to do, when I say we want to grow, we do want to grow in numbers also, but we want to be a church that plants churches. Um, I remember... Pastor Jonathan was talking to me about um, someone who was planning a church uh, nearby and uh, wanted to talk to him about it, make sure it wasn't like weird that he was, you know, planning a church in, in the same area. And I love what Pastor Jonathan said. He said, uh, you know, we don't need fewer gospel-centered churches. We need right. more gospel-centered churches in right. this area. But but that's funny because in, in some of the church culture here, uh, I've I've had the privilege of working with some of our uh, Baptist associational offices, and whether that's official capacity or unofficial, uh, in some instances, and there is an atmosphere sometimes of competition. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of churches. I'm not going to name the neighborhood because I'm sure my listeners know. There were a number of churches that were looking in this one area that was a fairly wealthy area, mm-hmm. and there were already some churches down there. And each of these kind of larger churches in Houston was looking to put. Uh, a branch out there, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they talked about, you know, I was in the room when they would talk about, well, we really need to hurry our plans to, to beat out the competition. And I mean, they're all vying for competition for, you know, what, what space can we rent? And But there's also a, you know, if we plant our flag first, we will grow numerically mm-hmm. the fastest, the largest, et cetera. And, and so there's certainly kind of this darker businessy mechanical side Mm -hmm. that I think probably makes you and I pretty uncomfortable. And so I agree with Jonathan as well. What we need in Houston is not, you know, fewer churches that are gospel centered, but more and in more, um, you know, it's kind of like spices if you think of food, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, we've we've both had Indian food. And if you have your first plate of biryani, for those who haven't, you should go try it. There's some great places in Houston. But one thing you'll notice is they'll have tons of spices in it. 
Um, and it'll be things like you'll find a whole uh, cinnamon stick or whole cardamom pods. Mm-hmm. So if you take that whole cinnamon stick and you put it in an entire dish of uh, biryani, it's a rice dish, um, it, f- it f- flavors it just enough. If you were to take that same cinnamon stick and grind it, and it would diffuse into the dish to the point where it would be inedible. Uh, so this isn't really a great analogy, come to think of it. But the, the analogy is, um, you know, we're called to be salt and light. Like mm-hmm. one big salt block in a city mm-hmm. doesn't help the city, right? We need to break that salt up, right. spread it throughout, and then it diffuses in everywhere. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that we've, we've kind of had this selective hearing when it comes to the Great Commission, where we says, it says, uh, you know, to go out and make disciples of all nations. We've, we have, we've only taken like one piece of the make disciples part, which is actually make converts, which is a part of making disciples. Mm-hmm. And we've just focused on that. Right. And we've left out the discipleship part and we left out the go out part right. also. And so what we've done is we've stayed in one place, which is actually what the, the Jews, the, first, the, the disciples did, uh, in Jerusalem, they actually ignored Jesus' commands. A lot of people miss this in the book of Acts, that Jesus said, okay, you're going to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Then when the Holy Spirit comes, yeah, you need to go, go out into Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Right. And then it says, after the Holy Spirit came, it says, and they stayed in Jerusalem. It's like, well, that's the opposite of what Jesus told you to do. Yeah. And I think we've kind of done the same thing with the, the megachurch movement. And I'm not saying that having large churches is an inherently bad thing. I think there are ways to have a large church uh, that you can do biblically and you can still pursue people for discipleship. But I think it's difficult and it's not always practical. And I think having the mindset of going out and making disciples, when you have that as a priority, I think that diffuses a lot of this kind of church competition mentality right. uh, because because your, your sole goal is not just to increase in number. Because we've, we've kind of seen that as like a noble calling. like Right. We want to be bigger. Why? If we, yeah, if we <laughs> increase in number, that means that we've made more converts and that we have more people set for the kingdom of God. Right. But even that, I feel like that also doesn't necessarily guarantee that you've made more converts because anybody can show up to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean they've put their faith in Christ. Um there have been could just people, be social pressure. Yeah, or they they might come because maybe they're looking for a wife or a spouse, or maybe they just like the community. Right. Um, and in even our small church, you know, we have not everybody who comes to our church is a Christian. And in some cases, we would not have known that if we hadn't been a small church. Right. If we had been a larger church, it's kind of scary to me that the some of these people might have been coming for years and been under the false impression that they are Christians when they're not. Hmm. When if you sit down and talk to them and ask them, uh, do you believe that Jesus is, is the only way? They would say, no, no, I don't believe that. You know, they would come every week and nod their heads and say amen um, and give kind of an intellectual assent to whatever's being preached and you might talk to them and assume, oh, yeah, you know, they're nodding their head. They're coming every week. They must be a Christian. But it's not always the case. Right. Um, 
you know, I, so I'm not a, opposed to buildings, but I think for most people when they think church, that's kind of their default view. And that's mm-hmm. why I, I'm trying to uh, open up this conversation about uh, just kind of the ins and outs of house church because I've been a part of both, right? Mm-hmm. We're sitting in our church building right now, Wilcrest Baptist. Um, but I've I've had house churches meet in, in my home and uh, other, other contexts. And so I've seen, you know, I, I think each structural uh, type of church is itself has, if we want to look at it pragmatically, it has pros and cons. Mm-hmm. But if we want to look at it theologically, we could say each structural type of the church is some different reflection mm-hmm. of the nature and character of God. Um, but obviously, when you create a building, you are stuck in a place, which mm-hmm. is both good and bad, right? You're that, that's your way of saying, hey, we're putting down roots. We're right. here in the community. But also, if the community moves or changes or whatever, then you're mm-hmm. you're you're there. And we've seen that again and again as diversity in Houston has increased, where a church planted under one model, the neighborhood changed, mm-hmm. the people were not ready, the people in the church were not ready to embrace that change. I'm speaking of ethnic change right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, the, the church constituency moved to a suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it decimated churches. We have, we have a, a corridor of churches along uh, southeast Houston. Mm-hmm. And I was, this is early in my seminary days, I was talking with a pastor there about coming on staff, and he mentioned that in the past 20 years, 45 churches in his area had shut down. And it was just neighborhood change. The church essentially moved out of the community over time, and then you're left with this building. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's any one church model that, that's the answer to this or that necessarily this is a problem. This is just a reality that mm-hmm. we have to face when we when we build buildings and we invest versus other methods. And I, I think you're right. You know, there's, there's multiple kinds of growth. Yeah, and I think something, an unfortunate side effect of, of what you mentioned is that whether intentional or not, churches have avoided lower-income communities planting and lowering This is very true. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, sadly, I think if you were to probably plot out a map of the churches that are kind of still standing, they would probably form a circle around the city. Right. <laughs> um, and which is extremely unfortunate because we've left ourselves with no way to reach those people um, in those communities because the model, unfortunately, has been, it's not necessarily a bad model in and of itself, but I think maybe what you're getting at is we, we need multiple different models uh, to reach different types of people. Right, right. And so what happens is if, you're, if, you're, if your community can't support you as a pastor, if you're going to be a full-time pastor, um, it's not viable to plant in that area. Mm-hmm. But that creates a huge moral conundrum then it's like, right. you know, a- am I doing this just because my job or am I doing this because the Bible says that we need to make disciples of all nations? Right. Um, of course, you can do it anywhere. But then the question is left is who's doing it in these areas? Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I admire our pastor uh, Spencer for coming to a place where uh, he said, you know what? And he's still actually in seminary. But he came to a place where he said, you know, I'm, I'm okay with being bivocational. Uh, I understand. You know, he, he's fully committed to staying in the area that we're staying in. Uh, he says, look, you know, I'm totally fine with being bivocational. If, if I need to support myself, I will. 
but I'm not just going to abandon mm-hmm. the church. I'm not going to use this church plant as a as a stepping stool up my career ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I think sometimes that's uh, what happens in the churches. Yeah. Um, is it's it's first and foremost a job, and, and it's not bad to have uh, to be to have ministry as as your job as your vocation. Um, but I think as Christians, we need to understand that it's more than just that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've also adopted this very American mentality of uh, moving, kind of jumping from one company to the next company to the right. next company. Moving up the ladder. Right. Uh, in search of our own kind of personal fulfillment, <clears throat> this kind of goes into what, what you talk about a lot about um, about the uh, difference between Eastern and Western culture. Um, I was, I think, I was listening to an interview with um, uh, somebody who works on video games in, in a Japanese studio. Okay. And they work, they work, to, work they work in tandem with Disney um, over here. So it's a collaboration between Eastern and and Western companies. And so he was talking about how uh, different, different, and sometimes difficult it is in this interview that in Japan, it's not common for people to to switch different companies very often. They they tend to stay very loyal hmm. to whatever company that they're in. They tend to stay there as long as possible. Whereas in America, they would tend to move around a lot. And so he's, you know, he was expressing his, in this interview some of his frustrations with the fact that he would always be talking to a different person at Disney and that the rules would keep changing because there would always right. be a different person <laughs> right. in charge of communicating with them. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the the Eastern mindset has a real long term view on the world, mm-hmm. and it's very much. It's not you and I talking in this room. It's the, my generations behind me and before me are talking mm-hmm. to your generations behind you and before you, and we're kind of just two helpless pawns sitting here in the sound booth right now. <laughs> um, so let's let's change topics for a bit. Um, of course, a lot of racial tension is happening around our country right now. Mm. Uh, you're in a multi-ethnic church. You're in a multi-ethnic school setting. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the school setting. How do you see these issues of race uh, playing out in in your school setting? You know, it, it's interesting. I think that I was talking to Clayton about this. Actually, you had him on the podcast uh, uh, a little while ago. I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but we were talking about the same thing and to me it still comes back to the issue of discipleship um, I think that what's happened is the media the culture has uh, essentially discipled an entire generation into mm. whatever whatever they want basically and and it's in a sense it's whatever is primal whatever gets the most clicks mm-hmm. uh, whatever hinges on our insecurities and our prejudices and I think what you see in the culture uh, with all this stuff with race going on is just uh, a lot of people just a lot of knee-jerk reactions, very little critical thinking, a lot of playing into um, media stereotypes and, and uh, media narratives. Uh, and I think the underlying problem is that if your parents and the church are not discipling your children, the world will do it for mm-hmm. you. That's very true. And, you know, so you're always going to be discipled. And I think the world knows how to disciple people better uh, than the church church does it. In May, because the world, the secular world, isn't having kids. 
uh, they believe having kids is evil and that we're destroying the planet and the the noble thing to do is to have kids. The problem is they can't they can't multiply their cause without having kids. So what do they do? They they disciple they recruit people. They adopt. <laughs> uh, this is something that uh, Douglas Douglas Wilson was talking about in his. Uh, I don't know if you've seen his show, Man Rampant, on uh, Amazon Prime. It's, it's pretty good. Uh, he's Douglas Wilson's been uh, a big influence for Spencer and I in um, in kind of how we approach uh, uh, discipleship and biblical masculinity, femininity. But he he was making this point that uh, the secular world, the only way that they're gaining ground in the culture is because they're effective at recruiting people. Mm-hmm. But if Christians would just do this one thing, and that's make disciples of just their own children um, and have more than two children, we would actually win the so-called culture war in like a generation or two. Mm -hmm. And I think the church as a whole has kind of fallen asleep at the wheel um, in terms of what's going on with the culture. Um, We've kind of retreated to our safe spaces, um, haven't been engaging the culture effectively. Um, I think our, our way of engaging the culture is, is just by voting for the person that we agree with and we think right. that, that that's our engagement with the culture. Yeah. Not realizing that politics runs downstream from culture. Uh, whatever's happening politically is, is it happened a long time ago in the culture before oh, it happened right. politically. Right, it's slowly catching up. Yeah, it, and so by the time it gets to whoever's in the White House, you, you've lost the battle. Um, that battle happened, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and it happened in the home. It happened with your children. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I I was at a church in a small town, and I noticed it was, it was VBS time of year. It's like a season in a small town, like fall, winter, spring, VBS, summer. Um, and all of the churches picked a different week and some of it was for organization. Some of it was they wanted things for the kids to do all summer. But I also noticed the language was we're doing this as outreach. So we're going to do a VBS and kids are going to come in from the community. But what I noticed actually happening was all of the Christian parents played the VBS babysitting game. Mm -hmm which was since they all did it at a different week, you could essentially get two months of half-day free babysitting for your kids. And we had a couple of kids come in from the community. I don't, I don't want to downplay that there was no good done in the community or that church kids don't need the gospel because mm-hmm. they certainly do, uh, maybe more so than the community even. But just thinking, just kind of analyzing this from a, as a mission outreach strategy, I was forced to the conclusion or to the question, the tough question of, do you have to be born in a Christian home in order to hear the gospel? And this relates to what you're saying about secular, you know, secular culture is, is really, are there really good evangelists? They're really good at uh, kind of planting that idea and growing that idea in someone else's head until it shapes into a worldview. And like now, now you're mine. And our strategy, even in a Douglas Wilson kind of context and all of, all of his various followers and uh, I think Vody Bauckham and others would fit in that, in that stream of thought is, you know, we kind of outbreed the culture and then, you know, have our kids' minds change to be the biblical worldview, um, which is one way of going about doing things. But eat, let's, let's, let's just assume that that's a successful model. The real question is, 
can the gospel then get outside of the Christian circle if that's the only way we, we do it? And so yeah. there's always a need to step out. Yeah, I think it's it's not either or. So it's going to be both and. Right. It's yeah. Please disciple your children, folks. Right. <laughs> so I think what I'm getting at is that you know if we're not even doing the first our first responsibility, which is to disciple our children. Right. Someone um, else how, will. Yeah. Someone else will, and then. And then you've undercut your means at, at at drawing more people in because if you can't even mm-hmm. uh, lead spiritually lead your own family, how are you going to disciple right. someone else who who came from a broken family from a non Christian family uh, yeah. who doesn't know anything about the gospel? Um, well, and, and this is the challenge for us as a kind of above ground brick and mortar type church is we're very aware that some people come into church on a Sunday. And for whatever reason, that's the only interaction they have. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything more about them, no matter how hard we try, no matter who tries to connect. That's just the barrier or the, or the boundary that they have set up. And yet, you know, Jonathan, you know me, we're very focused on making disciples. We're mm-hmm. very focused on reaching the community, on reaching the world. Um, and so you're right. Like if, if you can't if you can't build the spiritual structure of your home, if you can't minister to the spiritual needs of your family, chances are that, that that's probably a good litmus test or barometer mm-hmm. for what are you going to do in your workplace? What are you going to do in your neighborhood? What are you going to do on a trip? Um, not to say that if you disciple your family well, you're automatically good at those things, but it's, you know, chances are if you can create spiritual right. community, I mean, that's what a house church is. You're creating spiritual community in a home. Okay, so now you could move that to a coffee shop. You could move that to a building. You could move it anywhere once you know how to do right. that. But that's the essential component that you can't take out. Right, and that's our ultimate goal is to is to multiply. Um, and so, you know, when we start to outgrow the home, uh, we would ideally have somebody who we've kind of discipled and raised up to be a leader in the church who could say, okay, now let's have another house church right. at your house in another area, and, and we're going to focus on that area. Um, and I think, and part of discipleship is also discipling people on how to evangelize. And so instead of the church being the only means to evangelize people where your evangelism is just, I'm going to invite somebody to church. No, instead the church is for equipping believers and the believers are then equipped to actually evangelize themselves and to go out and be having those one-on-one conversations uh, with their coworkers and their friends and students and what and, and their family members, uh, instead of I, I want us to get out of this uh, mindset of outsourcing every job to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So where our job is to evangelize, we've outsourced that to the church. Where our job is to disciple our children, we've outsourced that to the church or to the Sunday school or to VBS, and then we wonder why right. because they spent one hour a week in a youth group. Um, that they go to college and then they're not Christians anymore. Um, yeah. There, there, there's a biblical model for this, and, and I face this a lot being at a, a church, and it's not just this church. At all, every church, it has this, this idea of we are, we're the lay people. Mm-hmm. Um, we hired you, pastor, mm-hmm. you've been through seminary, and so we expect you to get out there and get it done because mm-hmm. you're the guy who knows it. And so, hey, I have a friend who's Mormon. Can you come talk to him? I have a friend who's Muslim. Mm-hmm. I have a, a sister who's this or a brother who's that. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who go, oh, we want to see more outreach. Brian, you're not you're not doing more outreach. And what they don't understand is I am. I just have a biblical model for it. And the biblical model is this. It's Ephesians 4. Mm-hmm. And Ephesians 4.11 talks about God gave 
apostles, teachers, prophets, etc., for the building up of the saints for the work of the ministry. And so, you know, listeners, if you just kind of picture this in your head, on the left side of your mind, you would put, you know, typically we would put uh, church, like the church congregation, then the middle we would put the pastor, staff, the professional, and then on the far side we would put the world. And so we pay you to go do that. Right. Or maybe it's the children on that side. We pay you to go disciple our children. Um, and actually, the biblical model is reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're concerned that discipleship isn't happening in your church or that outreach isn't happening in your church, um, uh, staff people, you know, for us, this is we are to train the body to do this work. Mm-hmm. But if you're part of the church body, it's on you. You know, talk yeah. to your talk to your elders, talk to your pastors about being resource and being trained and equipped to do this. But but the biblical model is God gives these types of giftings and offices to train up the the mass of Christians to go out and do the work in the world. Right. And that's something that we've tried to communicate to um, all of our discipleship groups is uh, we tell them very, very straightforward and upfront. We just say, uh, hey, you know, you're in this group because the goal is for you to have your own group or it doesn't have to be a group that's just a, a particular model but in some way you're going to be discipling someone else yeah and periodically we're going to be checking in and say hey you know are you are you looking for someone to disciple um or we, we might as elders in a church we might see someone who we think might be a good fit and we say hey do you think you know what do you think about pursuing this person for discipleship um so we, we're trying to build that higher expectation of our members that if you're going to be a member of our church, what does this look like? Um, what is what is an expectation of you? And that's been a, that's been challenging because it, it, it's not been the typical mindset of most people in a church. Most people they're going to church for what they can get out of it, mm-hmm. um, you know, what they can do for me, and and th- and that is a part of it. Like you said, we're we're there to build them up, but you're building it up for a purpose, right? For you to actually. Do something. It's not the end. Right. <laughs> right. And I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have this mentality that they think, I'm on this next level spiritually because I actually go to church every week. Um, <laughs> right. And, and it's like, n- no, that uh, that's actually 101. That's that, that's the baseline. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're not even not in the Word daily. They're not um, uh, even really in prayer daily and sometimes you don't find out about this unless you're actually intentionally asking people mm-hmm. hey um, how are you doing with your daily Bible reading oh actually I haven't even read it all this week well you know yeah. th- that's a problem yeah. Let, let's work on that you know and, and never in a judging or, or condemning way but but always say hey you know I know it's difficult I know it's hard I know we have these challenges I know we're not used to it let's talk about practical ways that we can uh, we can work this out uh, you know, what are the challenges? What are the obstacles? Uh, is there a lack of motivation? And and in discipleship, you know, we start to address those issues. Yeah. So I'll ask you this one last question before we close. And I, I think your uh, kind of who you are and your background and everything makes you uh, a really key person to answer this question. Um, any church in the country or the world for that matter, uh, any church out there is trying to reach out. Okay. And in a context like Houston, one in four Houstonians are foreign born. And so if we're not, you know, if, if people haven't woken up, 
this morning with a skill of with, with a set of cross cultural skills, but they still have that heart of man. My neighbors are around, or hey, there's this family that's not like me in my church. Um, you know, from what you've seen, what are ways that churches can uh, love internationals better? Yeah, I think just being intentional goes a long way. Um, especially if you're in a diverse community already, um, you probably already have friends, even maybe extended family members, uh, co-workers who are international. Um, I think it's as simple as inviting someone out to lunch, uh, just getting to know them as a friend. Um, and, you know, if at some point asking them, hey, you know, maybe you would like to re- maybe read scripture together, or read this book together, or would you like to pray together sometime? I think just taking that first step just goes a long, long way. In, uh, and then, you, of course, along the way, you start to find out about that person's culture, you find about the uh, cultural differences. Um, but just being open, being willing, uh, being willing to branch out, I think is huge. Being willing to try different types of foods um, <laughs> and, and not doing kind of the ugly American thing where you're like, oh, I, I don't eat that. Oh, what is that? Like, yeah. You know, just being willing and being open, I think it just goes a long, long way. Yeah, that's good. Well, David, I really appreciate you taking time and coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, So I just want to remind all of our listeners that in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Shelly Simon uh, participate in our show. Uh, Shelly is an immigration lawyer of some kind. I'm sorry, I'm not into legal jargon, so I'm sure she'll help me uh, with her description better when she comes on the show. But we've been watching the Netflix documentary on immigration called Immigration Nation. And we're going to be chatting about this together. So it should be an interesting conversation. Uh, If you have questions that relate to immigration, nationalization, uh, any of the laws, that kind of thing, uh, go ahead and drop us an email. And I will be sure to ask her those questions on your behalf. Thank you for listening to Nations Reaching Nations. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nations.